Hello and welcome to the first ever edition of Tech and Trees in English. This time I speak to Frederick Udenfeld. He's the VP of Product Vision at ClimateView. ClimateView is a climate action platform for cities. A major share of greenhouse gas emissions worldwide stem from the cities that we love so much. But whoever has ever lived in one can tell how much of a hustle and bustle is going on in these places. It is extremely hard to get these melting pots under control and it is extremely hard to do so when it comes to reducing the emissions that cities cause. ClimateView helps to break down the complex urban systems into tangible actions. When cities set up a climate strategy, that can take several months, if not longer. With ClimateView, this process can actually be reduced down to a few days. This effort was rewarded with the placement among the 100 most innovative companies in the climate space worldwide in 2021. But that is not everything. Frederick himself is the embodiment of someone who managed to transition into career in climate change from a completely different background. He speaks Chinese fluently, which led him to become a diplomat working in China. Frederick describes his career as completely random and simply a series of coincidences, nothing else. While this podcast is great to get to know more about climate action for cities, Frederick's adventures in China are just as worth it. So have fun and enjoy listening. Welcome, Frederick. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you. Um, let's start with like a few quick questions in the beginning. I would like to know what is like a happy childhood memory of yours. So I have quite a few memories actually. I, 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 my first memory is like from age eight or nine, and and uh, after that, not a huge deal of or, or amount of memories. So because I, I spend ninety nine point nine percent of my time thinking forward, so that's maybe why my brain doesn't register too much of the past. But I did love fishing when I was a kid. So I have many happy memories from the countryside, fishing with my grandparents or my parents uh, on, just on a, on a small boat. So yeah, that's something I enjoyed uh, as a kid. Sounds good. If you were now to complete the sentence, Frederick Udenfeld is? Quick. <laughs> what, what is the most controversial idea that you are advocating? So I'm not advocating this uh, actively, but I do think that it's... It's a bit strange the way people typically blame big oil for many of our problems. I think, I think they're just doing their job, delivering the goods that people want. And I think if, if there's any, anything, anyone who should be blamed, it's the, the people selling the equipment that uses the oil and the gas and the diesel, like the big car companies, the truck companies that have really not innovated uh, in any meaningful way to get away from that fuel dependence. Interesting. What, what KPI do you always have an eye on in your line of work? For me personally, it's um, inbox zero. So if I lose track of my email and, uh, you know, if I don't have consistent, if I don't consistently reach inbox zero, then I know that something is wrong. And, and uh, um, yeah, that's, that's my main KPI, I would say, <laughs> on, on a personal level. I, I love that. I follow the same pattern. Um, what would you like listeners to remember you for after this podcast? Um, I just hope that people will find it helpful and that I provide value and just that I, I can manage to give practical, helpful advice. And uh, uh, yeah, I just hope to be of, of, of use. Sounds wonderful. Then let's get right into it, I would say. Uh, one of our main topics today is the climate transition in cities. Um, I would like to know your thoughts about like what role do cities actually play in our fight against climate change? So first of all, it's, it's, uh, the city is a very helpful entity uh, or a level to consider when you think about climate. Because if you think about it on the global level or the national level, it, it becomes quite abstract and complex. And uh, if you think about it at the city level, then you can it just becomes much more concrete um, because in the city there you need to build things, you need to change residents' behavior and, and, and the city is the entity that is responsible for many of these things. So they do play a very important role in many of these these shifts, the transitions, the, the changes that need to happen in order to, to reduce our, our emissions. 
Um, and it's also a fact that more than 70% of global emissions come from cities. Um, so um, cities are, are, are crucial and uh, often under-resourced um, and they don't have the, the enough power and the resources to, to deal with many of these uh, issues that they are facing. So I was wondering, because you once stated that you are a fan of thought experiments, and in front of the background of what you just said, if we were to build the ideal climate-respecting city from scratch today, what, what would that look like? What are like the main building blocks? So first of all, like we could entirely do the whole climate transformation of a city without even saying the word climate. Because many of these things, they just simply make sense. So who would not want to live in a city with, uh, you know, great cycling facilities, uh, electric buses, and fewer cars, and the few cars that do drive around are, are electric, and houses that are heated through electric heat pumps instead of gas or oil boilers. So this sounds like a dream city to me, and and so that's how a city that's how a city should look and and um, how it should be built of course there is a lot a great deal of inertia built into the city it, it's hard to change these things but but it's really the blueprint is is quite clear we need to shift the way we move around and the way we heat our buildings those are the two main things that need to happen um, so that's that's what i um, think the ideal city uh, looks like and i think most residents would consider uh, that a great city to live in as well so, so do I understand right when you say basically like a livable city is kind of equal to like a climate respecting city or like that if you if you optimize for livability, then you opt automatically optimize for like climate neutrality or climate respecting. Yeah, yeah. So uh, air pollution uh, is a great problem in many cities. Um, uh, noise, a big problem. Um, lack of insulation and, and, and costly heating. That's another big problem. Um, and uh, just congestion is, is a big problem. So these are problems that really reduce the quality of life in the city and also are, can be directly harmful to cities, especially children. When you, like air pollution is, is very, very harmful to, to children. And um, that, so those are like no-brainers. Those are things that need to be dealt with anyway. And now we have a great excuse to do them even faster. I think it's amazing that you say that because it's also like my personal thought usually that if we, we like that if we strive for a sustainable world we we actually strive for the most livable world we can potentially have like I, I don't I know like I'm usually confused by people who like oppose sustainability because the end goal of it it's kind of like just raising the yeah, the quality of life that, of everyone essentially um yeah. I'd be I'd be interested what kind what kind of problems cities should we have looked at like 10 years ago, in your opinion, you know, like what's the maybe like the most urgent or where did we really like not act when we should have had, when we should have? So, of course, some things are a matter of market forces and like it wouldn't, it would not have been a great point to, or, or maybe not a great idea to invest heavily in charging infrastructure 10 years ago because the market just wasn't there. There weren't enough electric vehicles to supply the market. Other things are more or less independent of market forces. Uh, it's just about behavioral change. So cycling is one such thing. And if you look at the great cycling city today, like Amsterdam or Copenhagen, they were not always great cycling cities. So any city can become a cycling city. It's not rocket science. And there's no technological breakthrough or there's nothing as such needed. So you can, you can do it... You, like Amsterdam did it in the 1970s or 80s onwards. Copenhagen started maybe 20 years ago. Now more cities are trying to catch up. So that could definitely have been done 10 years ago. Another thing that is, is slightly more complex, um, but equally or even more important is uh, heating of buildings. Many countries have gas and oil boilers um, in, 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 as, as the primary mode of heating. So that's something that takes time to change. There's a great deal of inertia built into the system. It's, it's uh, you know, you have landlords, you have uh, permits, you have uh, in, in economic incentives and all sorts of factors that go into that. And the, the earlier you start, um, the better your chances are to succeed. Like Sweden 
started that in the 1970s and you know started the shift to heat pumps and now we have very few boilers left but uk cities are starting that journey now and they have a hard journey ahead of them do you, uh, do you feel confident that we will be able to overcome this inertia because you said okay like sweden has started this transformation like 50 years ago almost and like you're you're now about to finish it for example um But like there's so many cities or countries who haven't started that journey yet. But like, do you think with learnings of other countries and like the technologies in play today, like we can like accelerate this process? Yeah, I, th I think they can do it. And, and the pressure is building up. There is no excuse really to not do it. Um, the only viable excuse is that gas is very cheap still in many countries. So heat pumps might not always be attractive economically in the short term but almost always in the long term so um that uh, of course there the government has a role to play to incentivize uh, these technologies but i think i think it's definitely doable and uh, the pressure is building and it makes a great deal of of sense economically uh, for the household to do it in in, in the long run yeah oh, like over the past couple of minutes you have like named different action fields for cities could you just like quickly order them for me like in uh, like by priority sort of like the top three or top four priorities for cities so mobility uh, personal mobility is almost always the biggest one or the second biggest one so the way people move around in the city today of course to a high degree through fossil fuel cars and if any city is supposed to reach zero carbon then those have to go away and considering that a new car on average lasts 14 years and there are still new fossil cars being sold, um, that will be a challenge. So, but luckily we have options. We can maintain the same level of mobility with other means of transport. We can shift to public transport. We can shift to electric vehicles. We can shift to cycling. And of course we can shift to digital mobility, like as we have seen during the pandemic. And, and we knew this from before, that digital technologies have a huge potential in replacing trips, both long-distance trips and, and short-distance trips. Uh, and I think we, we're seeing a permanent shift to that. So personal mobility is a, is, a, is a very important one. Then, of course, we have goods. But that's more of a market-driven um, thing where I think as long as the technology uh, is there and the market supplies electric vehicles, these goods companies will shift immediately or as least as, as quickly as they possibly can to electric modes because it's just so much more cost efficient so i think that sector will electrify by itself in many ways of course it can be speeded up through incentives but but it's it's a really uh, market governed uh, in, in a good way um, heating is is all, always also a big one for cities or, or i mean depends on, on which country but in in uk and germany and, and us certainly it's it's a big source of emissions both, both heating and cooling Thank you. Um, what is like a like a, like a prime example of a city that is really like on track to like drive its climate transition? So, in one sense, there is no such city because they are all at the very early outset of this journey. No one has done any such transformation going to 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 zero carbon. It's it's unheard of. Um, so that would be the short and dramatic answer. <laughs> But then, of course, there are cities that have at least started meaningfully. And I think the best way, the best metric to look at is not necessarily like emissions or, or, or because differences are quite small. I think the best metric is, uh, is uh, how they organize themselves. So if they have set up in a flexible and collaborative way to go about this um, in terms of the city management internally, like if all the departments are on board working on this issue um, and if they have involved the, the most important stakeholders in society, the big companies, civil society, residents, that tells me that they are on track to, or at least they have a greater chance of really having an impact. While if you only have like a, a, a lonesome climate team working in their own silo and have, having a hard time reaching across to other departments like the, the housing department or the transport department, well, that's uh, a, a worrying sign 
then they will have a harder time, I think, having an impact. So I think that's that's a good indicator to look at um, when you look at cities rather than these other um, numerical metrics, um, at least at this point. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think you've just really nicely described like how complex the transition of a city towards climate neutrality is because there are so many different stakeholders involved and like you have to get them actively involved in collaboration to like speed up the process. Um, I was wondering whether you maybe had like a, like a practical example which would kind of illustrate how the difficulty of realizing like a climate initiative in a city. Well, cycling is, uh, I think, an interesting one because they're, on the one hand, it's, it's quite straightforward. If you build good infrastructure, um, like really good, like a well-connected, cohesive cycling network, then cycling will almost always become the most competitive way of transporting or getting around the city. But of course, you will uh, inevitably meet resistance because there is a limited finite space in the city. So if you build cycle lanes, that's often at the expense of uh, the space that cars use. So that's uh, a potential source of conflict. Um, you need to invest money, of course, maybe at the expense of other initiatives. Um, and there is always a certain degree of risk-taking. You don't know, you cannot know for sure that people will use these assets that you build. So you need political will and, and the some, some amount of, of willingness to take risks. And uh, I think the, the cities that we have seen that succeed, they, 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 they kind of they just, they just do things <laughs> and then they learn as, as they go. And uh, what we try to do is to break down these things into small pieces and, and to create a common language for all these pieces. So when it comes to cycling, well, the network is one thing. Another thing is the maintenance of the network, including things like the winter maintenance. So you need a functioning network also in the winter. And uh, there we know that some cities are better than others. So that's a good level at which you can learn from each other, winter maintenance. Uh, there is best practice for that. But that, that best practice does not spread naturally. So we can help make sure that that, that spreads uh, across cities and across countries. You've just touched already on, on the next topic, and that is what Climate View does, or what you help to do at Climate View as well. And I think what I really love about your like the company you're at is like that you really aim to bring order to this like big, hard to manage complexity that cities kind of represent, right? Like you try to break it down in like manageable, actionable items. Um, like the, the thing is, like I was wondering how how do you develop such a product? Right, like, like, how do you, because I, I imagine that it like takes a lot of co-development, like a lot of working together with cities to like draw up the right needs in this and like the right solutions, right? So I was wondering whether you could give me some insights in into like the development process of the product at Climate View and like the company that you have undergone over the past two years. So everything we do is done in a in a very agile and iterative way, and uh, we. So the founding story, I think, is quite telling in this regard. So our founder, he was an agile coach uh, helping big companies do complex transformations. And he, and he figured that, well, if, if this method works so well for big corporations going through very messy and complex processes, wouldn't it work just as well for the climate? So he pretended that Sweden as a country was his customer. And what you do then as, a, as an agile coach or consultant is that you start out by building an overview, typically in, in, in the form of a big poster. So he, he uh, created this huge poster, like five meters or seven meters wide. And on this poster, like uh, building out a tree, a tree, uh, like a, a tree structure, uh, mapping out all the various sectors and all the initiatives and the big policies that were connected to these sectors just to, to get an understanding of like, okay, what is actually being done? What has been decided within all these sectors from transport to uh, uh, agriculture, to industry and heating and energy. So then he had this, this overview and he started to go around to different agencies and, and government authorities. And they were like, wow, we have never seen this overview. We, we did not know <laughs> that all of these things are being done. And because and, it's, it's very hard to get that overview. Like even if, they would commission someone to write a report to do that kind of overview, it would become out of date very quickly. 
uh, or be, probably by the time it's, it's published al already. Um, so that then triggered them to ask him to, well, couldn't you do this digitally so that we can keep it up to date? And, and, and that's uh, the way it, it, it went. So it was developed closely with them, primarily with the Swedish Climate Policy Council, and it evolved into a digital product. And so Sweden as a, as a country was our, our, our launch customer. Um, then along the way, we realized that, well, to have a, the greatest possible impact, we want to work with cities because we think they are key to this, this, this challenge and, and to make the changes necessary. So then we started working with the cities, our first early adopters in Sweden and the UK and Germany. Same there, we, we try to work very closely with them. So we never ask them, like, what do you need? Because that's very hard to, to say as a customer. It's our job to innovate and to propose, propose solutions, but then we show them to the customers at a very early stage. Like, so we do a lot of prototyping, showing like, at the very, very early, you know, ugly mock-ups. Mock <laughs> we show them and, 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 and sometimes we workshop with them uh, to just to understand, like, what do you actually need? What, where can we actually make a difference in your work life uh, when, you, when you manage this, this transformation? So that's, that's how, how we work in a nutshell, I think. Yeah. Um, would you would you mind maybe like guiding me through like a user journey kind of if I were a user of the Climate View product? You know what I mean? Like like how would do you actually manage to make like a systems level action tangible within your product? So what we do is we take the climate goal of the cities. So let's say that it's uh, to reach zero emissions 2035. And then our system, our software and the model within the software breaks down this goal into targets we call them transition targets so these are um, sh what these are are shifts so we shift from fossil fuel cars to public transport to cycling to uh, evs um, and every such shift needs a target and we need to make sure that these targets add up to the greater goal because otherwise we will never reach the goal uh, and so for every one of these shifts we have a target for 2040 the same end uh, year And then we can walk backwards from there and see, okay, what does this mean year by year? So, so for example, that could mean that, well, by 2022, you need to shift these many cyclists from cars to, to uh, or you need to shift these many uh, motorists from cars to cycl cyc uh, cycling. And then they would need to work toward that goal and, and to take action. Um, so that's, this is done uh, through various steps in the software um, and they can do this alone. So we spend some time with them uh, when they, get started but we try to automate as much as possible of these steps and, and spend less and less time with the customer and, and to make it as intuitive and and um, uh, self-manageable as, as possible you've said now like that you you spend a lot of time very closely with cities right with those city bodies um I'm wondering a little bit, like you know, when like business, you have this classical, classic division between like B2C and B2B, right? Like you are a B2G, so a business to government business, right? Like what, what, what does, what makes like working with governmental actors unique? You know what I mean? What are maybe the, the biggest pain points also in there? I think it's it's quite similar to B2B. It's it's about delivering value. It's about finding pain points, as you said. It's it's uh, so that's similar to any B2B software. Uh, of course, um, the sales cycle is, is different with government. It um, in some ways, but not not in in all ways. Um, when it comes to pain points, um, there are a few major ones that we help solve. One is uh, well. Before, um, before we were around and before we worked with cities, what they would do when they set out on such a goal, they would might hire a consultant to help them understand what this means in practice and, and maybe set some targets or, or propose actions. Um, but that consultant might not always share the underlying assumptions, the calculations. So it might be some sort of black box that it comes out of. And in the end, you get this PowerPoint report or a PDF that is delivered to you that you might not feel entirely full ownership of. So it's hard to kind of translate that into action directly. And of course, that also costs money to hire people and so forth. So that's one thing that they can avoid through working with us. Um, another is, is just managing all these different pieces. And uh, it's just, I think, for many of our customers, it's typically quite a painful process just 
reaching out to all sorts of colleagues across all departments and making sure that uh, they do things uh, that are not their core mission. Like if you're the transport department, climate might not be your core priority. So you have to convince them to do more and you have to keep track of what they do and encourage them to do more and also just understand what they do. Uh, just so that it's, it's not always a collaborative atmosphere um, by default. Um, so we can help them we can help empower them and give them a platform in which they can involve these colleagues in a, in a meaningful way to create that team spirit, which we think is necessary to, to make things happen um, in the city. So that's another pain point, just that internal collaboration part. Uh, another big pain point is reporting. So many cities uh, spend a lot of time in Excel preparing reports uh, to third parties like CDP, um, so they have to report their emissions and all sorts of things to these third parties or sometimes the EU, different EU institutions. And that's uh, not fun for them. <laughs> and it takes time. And if you're a small city or if you only have like one or two people working with climate, well, then it's kind of unfortunate that you have to spend that, this overhead time not doing other things. But this we can automate. Uh, and we've already, we can all, already do that to, to a degree, but we will in the future even more so just by the click of a button they can do things that would take weeks before in excel and of course lots of anxiety and, <laughs> and pain how, how dare you say that excel is not fun i cannot <laughs> i cannot relate to that um like you, you've been acting as the vp of community growth at climate use for the major part of the last two years there so you've been kind of at the forefront of like working with cities and like kind of getting your product to them um i i was wondering like what would a typical day like like look for you at, at in this process you know what i mean like what does a good day look for you so i well, i started as as uh, working with with the sales which which community growth means and uh, that was my first job at, at climate view i was the first actually international salesperson we i was the first one to initiate our, our international expansion when i joined so we were only 10 people at the time when i joined and now we're more than 40 and um, so it was a lot of outreach, of course, trying to reach cities and to initiate, in, initiate conversations. And, and a great day would be when people got back to me and, and said, yeah, we're interested and, and we want to talk. An even better day would be a day with, with a meeting because we found very quickly that almost everyone, at least those who read their emails, <laughs> uh, uh, they were typically interested in us because we were something new, something exciting. So almost all cities wanted to talk. And when we spoke, we were always met by enthusiasm. And, and so these were very exciting meetings. And uh, just, you know, being able to share something new, something something they, they seem to genuinely appreciate, that was a lot of fun. And we also learned a great deal about how they work and, and also saw things and opportunities that, that we could we could develop. So just, just meeting cities was a lot of fun for me uh, in, in those first years. I have to ask a little bit, like, what's like, what was email your main like outreach channel? Like, what what kind of channel worked best for you to actually like get through the, to the people? Yeah, email. I would say email, and um, and that's I think the way government typically works, also like through email. But my colleague who worked with the German cities, uh, I think uh, there, I think he was spent quite a lot of time on the phone. Uh, so that was. Um, another way of doing it there, I think email worked less well uh, there uh, in Germany. Uh, and I was working mainly with, with the UK and, and Swedish cities. Uh, they, they prefer email, I think. Did, did you have to like try out a lot of like different subjects and so on and so forth? Or was it like rather easy to get answers? Or did you have like any kind of hack to get people's attention? Um, I wouldn't say I was very good at that. I, yeah, I did try many things. I, I'm not sure still which one was the best. <laughs> uh, I think it's a, it's it's a, a sales is a is a is an interesting art form. Uh, I had never done it before, so there was a, a great deal of catching up for me and, and learning. And but it's 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 actually quite fun, um, and it's just about trying to communicate value and understand pain points and problems that you can help solve. And sometimes you find out, well, we don't have that problem that you thought we had, or we're not interested in that, and that's fine. Uh, but other times, we you do find that match, and that's that's great when you do that. So that's it just 
it's just a, like information arbitrage in a way, or just it's it's so it's it's it, it was surprisingly fun. Um, but yeah, the, the the kind of the writing email part and the headlines that was, uh, of course, slightly less fun. Uh, and I, I still don't don't know like any magic tricks. <laughs> I see, I see. Um, and now you previously told me to our conversation that you have like started your third career now, right? Like now you're the VP of Product Vision at Climate View. Um, how has that like been treating you? So I. I uh, even when I was doing sales, I was already quite involved in product development because I was talking to cities all the time and I was also part of onboarding them, getting to know them very well and the way they work. And also, of course, saw, you know, issues with our product because uh, we, we were still in a very early stage with the product. It was it was a quite a basic product still. And so there were plenty of room for uh, development. And I often suggested things and tried to get involved in the product development. Uh, and eventually, I was just pulled into the product department. So now I'm, I'm part of that, uh, which I love. I love. And I still get to meet cities, but now more to you know existing cities, existing customers to prototype uh, things and, and to, yeah, so uh, which I love. So yeah, but it's my my third career is uh, the product is is in product which i love and i think that yeah. this might go on for a long while <laughs> um from that point of view then can you tell me a little bit about like where the future lies for climate view and your product so we're now in a fortunate position of just having done our our series a so we we just uh, raised uh, more than 10 million euros in in capital so now we can we can hire a lot of people so we can grow from currently having 40 people to maybe hopefully twice that at some point um, so this will give us a lot of muscle in terms of product development but also just feet on the ground um, and there is a, a lot still to be done with the product um, and especially when it comes to the economic aspects of the climate transition. So this is a, a big area of development for us in the future. Um, really trying to highlight and to model the various benefits of the climate transition. Because if you look at these different shifts, the shift to cycling, the shift to public transport, and, and the shift to heat pumps, they make a lot of sense, as I, as I said before. And you can almost always attach a number to that. Like, what's the value of the children of our city breathing clean air you can place a number on that and if you do that then you get a positive return on investment and that you can use to build a business case for these transitions so that's one of the big areas for us going forward another is just to make it even easier for cities to take action and just to find and and improve that common language and the taxonomy for actions now cities uh, have these action plans they're all taking action on their own but there's a limited uh, there is a limited opportunity for them to learn from each other because these things are very local in nature and the wheel is reinvented all the time everywhere uh, and there we believe we can play a much bigger role than we do today uh, and that's another area that we're working a lot on uh, and something that I, I, I lead personally. Yeah, I love it. Helping cities to like communicate the value they create to the outside even better and like also internally. Really good. Um, yeah, I would, I would like to make a little switch and kind of trace back your steps and like see how you actually ended up in the startup world because you have had life before joining Climate View. Um, and that started with like Chinese studies, actually. Like, can you tell me a bit about like how that came about? It was totally random. Um, I, <laughs> I never been to China, never been to Asia. I was 18 and I was kind of interested in learning Japanese, but that university class was full. Uh, so then I just <laughs> randomly saw this ad on the internet for like this web-based university course in Chinese uh, so at this Swedish university. And I signed up and I kind of forgot about it and then like a, a two months later I was admitted and I started and and then uh, it was quite fun uh, but not much more than that but then I got the chance to go there for a summer course so I spent the summer of 2007 I think in Beijing and I loved it and 
but the biggest thing for me was that I, I realized that Chinese wasn't as hard as I thought. And I, I was actually quite well suited in, in a, some, for some strange reason to learn Chinese. <laughs> so I, I just learned it very quickly. I had never been a great language learner before. I, I was very bad at, at learning German in school and uh, maybe I wasn't motivated. I don't know, but like Chinese, I just, I just learned it very quickly. And, and, and um, yeah, and then that kind of went onwards from there. So I just kept studying Chinese all, all the way alongside other topics that I studied, including economics and, and, and political science. So it was very random. <laughs> so does that mean that you accidentally ended up in like Chinese studies and so you accidentally became a diplomat afterwards or how did that happen? Yes, also, also quite accidentally, yes. Uh, I mean, I was studying political science and economics and of course working for the foreign ministry was uh, something that many people there, like my classmates, something that most people wanted to there there aren't so many employers in that space like uh, in, in sweden of course there are other government authorities but most people typically want to end up at the ministry so i, I figured well maybe i i should work there as well <laughs> and uh, they uh, were seeking chinese speakers uh, at the time and probably still do so it was, it was easier for me to get in and uh, yeah and also did an internship and a few other I spent a few years working in China before I entered the ministry. And so um, it was quite easy for me to get in there. Uh, but also, yeah, fairly random. <laughs> how, how much time did you actually spend as a diplomat then? Uh, six years, I think, um, depending on how, how you count. Yeah, um, and, and, and you spent all those six years like basically traveling between Sweden and China all the time? Or like how, how, how did that work? I spent uh, three years as a diplomat as a, like a proper diplomat in, in China, but six years if you count other roles. And then okay. uh, I yeah. spent two years in Sweden afterwards, uh, traveling a lot to, to China and, yeah. and to Asia. Do you have like a like a most memorable moment from your diplomat career? Well, China is a crazy place. Uh, there's just, it's just so intense and things, uh, things move at a very fast pace. It's like a huge startup. The whole country um so every day brought crazy stuff um the, the craziest maybe was uh, for one period i was uh, following the steel industry very closely like tr trying to help swedish companies uh swedish suppliers get into the steel um business in china uh, or delivering you know, equipment and, and solutions to chinese steel uh steel companies uh, and so i got to know a few chinese steel companies very well and i i was invited to their annual banquet the annual meeting of the chinese steel industry so this, so this is it was this massive meeting with i think a thousand people like chinese steel executives and i was the only foreigner in the room <laughs> and uh, and i i know i still have no idea like why i was invited and, and uh, i don't think it would happen would have happened today It was just so weird. And uh, at that time, the Chinese steel industry was um, under huge pressure, like price pressure, and a lot of companies were going bankrupt. And um, they just were, I, I remember one like very high level official from Beijing who said, the winter is coming. <laughs> That was like his opening opening sentence, like uh, the Game of Thrones reference uh, when, when he kind of set the tone for the conference. It was just, yeah, it was pretty cool. Uh, and then in the evening, there was this uh, banquet uh, and the Chinese uh, steel people, they love to drink and they love to drink Chinese like, <laughs> rice liquor, like very, very strong rice liquor. It was like this crazy drinking uh, dinner. <laughs> and of course, they wanted to drink with me. So yeah, that was that was wild. Uh, I love I love the picture like a, like a Swede in the middle of a lot of like Chinese steel executives, amazing. Um, I'm kind of wondering like I, I imagine you're in that situation right now like you have to kind of like know your way around conversations and kind of networking right like like has that also like like I imagine you to be kind of like a master of the skill by now right like I guess like the Chinese school has kind of like hardened you in that way. Um, has this like skill of like conversation or networking also helped you with your transition into climate action? Well, I would say I, I was I was pretty poor at these things compared to my Chinese colleagues. So most Chinese people are like from a very young young age, very very good at networking and just have great social skills because they often have great big big families and 
you have to navigate all sorts of you know ties and you know just your extended network of uh, family and friends in your city and these networks are much bigger than the typical european family and you just are much closer to your relatives than than you would be in, in europe i think so people are just uh, better at that from a young age and they also are often good at maintaining networks so I had a call, like my Chinese colleague, the, the one that worked the closest with me, he just had this massive network and he was the one kind of helping me keep track of all, all these things. And so like, I didn't have to take care of that. And so he just, he was constantly on his phone on WeChat, which is like the Chinese version of WhatsApp or, or Facebook Messenger, constantly messaging with people and just uh, fixing stuff and arranging stuff and, and, and just uh, keeping in contact with, with people. So I didn't have to do that. I just had to show up <laughs> and just smile and just speak, you know, speak Chinese and, and, and uh, just go with the flow. And that's, that's typically the best way to go about things in China, just go with the flow and just like, well, because you, you end up in weird situations all the time. So that, what, what it did teach me, I guess, was a, a big amount of flexibility and which you do need in a, in a startup environment. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I would I would like to know a bit more about like the day when you realized you were gonna leave like your diplomatic career and like go into the startup world or like make the switch to like fighting climate change. Like, how how did that come about? So I I had for a long time or at least a couple of years been thinking a lot about the climate and uh, I could not see how I could make a meaningful difference uh, at the ministry. The closest thing you can come to is uh, climate aid, which is uh, basically funding the World Bank and other big institutions in, the, in their climate work. But that's far from the action. So I, I wasn't very interested in that. I considered going into other government agencies or, or ministries like the energy ministry, but I also didn't seem to be ter you know, very attractive to me. So I, I, I just kind of gave up and I didn't think much about it. And uh, then one day, very also very randomly, we had a we had a state visit from South Korea that I was part of, of managing. Um, so I was responsible for the business delegation. So the, the Korean president was in Sweden and, and going around to different places together with the Swedish king. And, and one of those places was a, this startup incubator with impact startup called Norsken or Norsken. And... Uh, we had this pitch event and I was the moderator and uh, we invited uh, a couple of different startups to pitch uh, in front of the audience, including the, the president and the king, but also Korean investors. And one of those companies were Climate View. I didn't notice them really because uh, I was too busy thinking about what to say next up on the stage and how to address the king properly. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but they seemed to have noticed me. So one of the co-founders came up to me afterwards and I asked if I wanted to talk. And I said, well, yeah, sure. And kind of, I think two days later, we met and I uh, quickly decided uh, to join. And uh, basically within a few days, I, I had quit my, my job at the ministry. <laughs> so you were just like recruited away in a matter of days. Um, so, 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 sounds sounds like... like I don't know, like a difficult decision to make. Like, what were like inner questions that you had at the time, to, or that you like asked yourself? It, it, it was a quite easy decision. It just seemed like a, a great match for me, uh, and I'm the kind of person that I I have a different definition of risk than most people. Uh, like, I didn't see any downside in that. Really, I could always you know, go back to the ministry if I wanted to, probably, or, or even, and, like, there's just, the, the, there wasn't a great deal of risk involved, um, only upside. Um, so, in that sense, it, it was not a hard decision. Uh, what I, of course, did think about was, I had never worked for a company before, and, and I, I, I tried to understand, of course, how, well, how, how big are the chances that they might succeed, and, like how far have they come and like are they telling me the truth and like those kind of things um but i, I was hooked anyway so I, <laughs> it didn't matter too much <laughs> but like in, in hindsight uh, of course uh, i i later realized that we had not come very far at the, I, and i think they didn't realize that themselves either and you, you never do when you're in the moment but we were at a super early stage we barely had a product uh, when i joined um, I was just going to ask, like you said, when you joined, you were 10 people, right? Like, so there was not much to like look at or evaluate, right? Exactly. So like, I, I kind of didn't care 
uh, too much about the product. I, I what I what got me hooked was the vision, mm. and the, the like the the the, the forward leaning kind of momentum rather than where they were exactly then. And, and that still goes for today. Like the most exciting things lie in the future, not where we are today. Uh, and uh, that's, that was the most important thing to me. Yeah. And you've, you've said that twice now that you're like a person who looks to the future, right? You look forward. W was there anything though that you were like sad to leave behind in, in like diplomacy? No, not too much. I mean, only colleagues. <laughs> so, so, like, like yeah. the ministry is, uh, is is fun because a lot of smarts and like you know, fun people to work with. Uh, it's it's a great like environment in that sense. You you I got a lot of friends there, and and you learn many things, and and it's obviously a very international environment. So, in that sense, uh, I miss it sometimes, but. <laughs> It's also a very harsh place to work for. It's it's, it's uh, as you might imagine. It's it's, it's government. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, what what were you looking forward to then? Like apart from the vision, like apart from like really standing behind this like vision of climate transaction for uh, climate transition for cities. So it's it's just the daily grind of t taking that vision and turning turning it into a product expression on a daily basis. And what I what I have realized over time, and this took some time for me to realize this, like how is product actually built? And now I'm talking software specifically. Hardware is, of course, different. But like you cannot build software in like big chunks. Like if you, if you build a car, of course, then you, you might spend, you know, a couple of years designing and, you know, prototyping, etc. But then eventually it's just, it's a car, it's, it's a piece of hardware. But like software doesn't appear that way. It, it, I mean, it's, it might in some exceptions, But those are rare exceptions. Software evolves in, in a great number of iterations. If you look at uh, the Wayback Machine, you know that place where you can look at old websites and you look at early days, uh, Google or Airbnb, and like they looked horrible <laughs> at that time. Uh, and they just, you know, they just put it out there and, and they, well, Partly because they had to, because and also because they didn't know better. And then you need to start somewhere, and then you, you you need to start to learn and iterate. And that's how great products are built. Uh, so you constantly need to learn and and collect data and and just information, and and of course get to know your customers and and just iterate. And that's that's what's so fun, and, and tying that to the vision so that you have a vision, yeah. of course, that you're striving for, but uh, that vision also has to materialize every day when you iterate on the product. Yeah. Um, I, I'm wondering, though, a little bit, like, everything you've just said, you know, that that's what you know today, right? Like, I'm wondering, okay, like, how much of that did you actually know when you joined? Like, and how did your diplomatic skills or diplomat skills, like, actually transfer into the startup world? I think my colleagues would describe me as pretty undiplomatic. <laughs> In some ways, I, I, I can be, uh, I, I usually speak my mind, uh, like in a, in a respectful way, but like I, I, th I think that's also the only way to survive as a startup. Um, like in a big organization, a big company or a government institute, then you can, like, for instance, let's say that I was in a big meeting at the ministry and someone like brought up this idea and like, I might think or I might know that, well, this is obviously not going to work. This is a terrible idea. Uh, but there's no reward really for saying that. It's just a risk, basically. There's no upside. Uh, that would just create bad will and like put me in a, in a bad spot and also the other person. So like, if anything, I, I might bring that person to the side and like whisper something to that. But like, still, it's... And of course, and there's never any single idea that is like mission critical to the whole organization. So you just, and that of course creates a general atmosphere of niceness and like you, you can, you know, just a cozy atmosphere because there's never any existential threat. But in a startup, there's always an existential threat. So if there's a problem, you need to get to that problem immediately uh, and you need to be very honest with each other and that can create cr friction but it also can be very 
uh, exciting because uh, you get very close to your colleagues. So I'm kind of undiplomatic, I think. <laughs> but maybe when I, when I, of course, externally and when I talk to customers, and I think I, I have a way to speak to government uh, like representatives and city representatives that maybe some of my colleagues are not familiar with. So I can, I can speak the, the, the language of government, I guess. Uh, yeah. So that, that, that's helpful. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm wondering though, like, what did the split between like winging your work as well as like actually knowing what you are doing look like? What did that look like in like the first couple of months that you were there? Oh, I was totally winging it, like, uh, <laughs> uh, absolutely. So we, I, I, I didn't know anything, and we knew very little in general. So we were just, of course, we had like a vision and and so forth, and but like we were, we had to wing it, like. Like my first week, uh, we spent, went to Copenhagen and, and, and I, I managed to get a few meetings there with the government and, and with cities and and we just quickly pulled together some sort of pitch and like we uh, were totally winging it <laughs> and and uh, like I, I just I, I, it's kind of embarrassing to even think about like how how we <laughs> must have seemed in those meetings but still we had to we just had to try stuff. And, and to learn because otherwise we would have never learned those things that we later on could incorporate in the product and they became very valuable to us so we you always have to wing things and i think that's my big learning from all over my career is that like people are winging it everywhere like even in i think if you look in in the white house like people are winging it everywhere and there's no there's nothing mythical or magical about any workplace um as soon as you get inside, it's just, it's well, it's like everywhere else. I, I, I love that. Um, I, I, I Like I, I can resonate very much with like winging stuff because it's also like what I tend to do usually. But I, on the, at the same side, it's also important to like keep educating yourself, right? And like read about what you're actually doing, especially like with a topic like climate change where you can easily go down the wrong lane if you like are not really like proficient in, you know, the topic kind of, right? And so I, I've seen that you frequently share some like long form articles or books that you like, like really like touched you, right? From that point of view. So on topics such as like rare earths or the workings of the energy system. And so I, I was wondering, like, how do you read up and educate yourself about climate change and like adjacent topics? I spend um, a lot of time and energy on learning in general. I think it's a big misconception in society that you learn in school and then you work and kind of stop learning. I think when you work, that's when you need to, if anything, accelerate the pace of learning. So I spend every evening really pur purposefully trying to learn things. I take university courses right now uh, in math and physics, and I also read um, a little bit all the time. Uh, I, I mean, I have small children, so I can't like sit down and read for hours, but like I always read stuff on, on the Kindle app on my phone and just constantly try to pick up new knowledge and not just knowledge itself, but like building the architecture to absorb knowledge. Like that's why I try to learn better math because that's like a, it's a way of learning that that way I can access more knowledge. And um so, yeah, I, I, like I, I'm now 34 and, and like I've only just started learning. Like I have 40, 50, 60 years left of learning. <laughs> and, and, and I've noticed the power of doing small things every day. If you do something every day, it adds up to a lot. Um, there's no point in doing like one big thing occasionally. It's much better to do something small every day. Yeah. Could, could you expand on what you mean by like an architecture of learning? Yeah, so let's say like like obviously we've all been in different rabbit holes on on Wikipedia, right? Let's say that I I, I end up in the Wikipedia page for DNA and genomics. Uh, you know, of course it might be fun. I spend a few minutes there and go on to some other articles, and but it would be hard for me to absorb that knowledge in in any meaningful way because I can't connect the dots. I don't have the foundation to. Um, to connect those pieces of knowledge to something else because um, I don't know enough biology and genomics. But if I would have that, that foundation in my mind, then I can integrate that knowledge much more quickly because uh, I, I have the building blocks. And I think that's the, the way the brain works. It's, it's, a it's like an intricate web of connections, you know, neural connections. So what I mean by the architecture is... is uh, just having the the in one uh, one way of saying it would be having the 
the language, <laughs> like math is a language through which you can access knowledge in physics or in, uh, in computer science. Um, another way would be just a, it's a method of learning, I guess. And it also gives you a lot of patience to learn. So if you, if you become accustomed to sitting two, three hours with a math problem, then really there's nothing that seems boring after that. So you can do any work problem <laughs> easily <laughs> after that. Um, so just because it's so easy to trick yourself uh, into thinking that you learn things like browsing Wikipedia or reading some book and like, oh, that was interesting. Now, uh, now I feel smarter, but I really didn't learn anything uh, or just quickly uh, goes away um, in the mind. So learning for real is, is quite hard. You need the foundation, you need the architecture, but you also, I think, need to uh, teach others about it. Uh, that's the only way to truly learn, I think, to explain to others and help others. And, 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 uh, and that I haven't quite reached to yet. <laughs> But is is that though the moment like when you when you're able to teach somebody else about a certain topic when you know okay I've learned this topic like I've learned about this truly? Yeah, at least at least uh, to some degree. Of course, you, you never learn fully, and I think usually what happens is that you just become aware of your own ignorance, and 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 like at least you know what you don't know to some degree, <laughs> and that that <laughs> tells me that you've come some way uh, if you think you know a lot then you probably don't know a lot if you know that you don't know a lot lot then you probably know more than you think yeah yeah makes sense um Fredrik, thank you so much like like we're coming to the end of our time so i would just like quickly like to wrap it up with like five short questions um the first one is like what what question can people ask themselves to start their own journey into sustainability i think for me scale is a, is a important and underestimated uh, topic There is a great deal of attention in media and elsewhere about fancy technologies that might never be able to reach scale. And that's the only way to really have an impact, to reach scale. <laughs> and I think it's doesn't it's not it, it's might sound like unexciting, uh, but like and yeah, and those so like for instance, you can you can have a huge impact if you become like a a solar PV salesperson or like a heat pump, you know, work for a heat pump company. Those those technologies are ready to deploy at scale. Um, while some other like more fancy technology, well, it might be possible to scale, but then you need to figure out, or you, I think you can often through some bit of research find out, well, is this scalable or, or, or not? Like how big can this actually become? Um, and that's, I think, an important lens to put on this if you truly want to have an impact. And then, of course, you need to pick up the knowledge. Uh, like in my case, if I would go back 15 years, I would probably spend, like I would study engineering or physics instead of um, um, instead of social science in my case. But that, of course, doesn't go for everyone. Um, but it, it's helpful, of course, to, to understand those fundamentals, I, I, I think, uh, when you work with sustainability. Yeah. Touching on that, like among younger people, eco-anxiety is kind of on the rise. And like, so, so what kind of advice would you give young students for their way? That... One individual can have a surprising degree of impact on the world. It's hard, but anyone can have a huge impact, and you need to be you need to work hard to have that impact. And and yeah, building things is hard. So find people who build and create solutions, um, and and learn from them. And then one day maybe you can be the person to build yourself. What gives you hope? that we're looking at a bright future? I think yeah, the power of innovation, clear, clearly. Uh, we're just at the very, very outset or beginning of um, the age of technology. <laughs> We've just been going for a few decades, really, or maybe a few hundred years, if you're generous. Uh, we're, we're, I think we're, if, look, if we go 1,000 years in, in the future and look back to now, it, it will come across as kind of a stone age Uh, situation. I think we're just in the, at the beginning of infinity in a way. Uh, there's a there's an infinite amount of things that will happen, uh, and as long as we maintain uh, uh, the acceptance and of, of critical thinking uh, and to make sure that we uh, encourage innovation. Yeah. What What do you want people to take away from this talk? Um, that people just uh, I don't know learn. Always be learning things. 
I hope that people, more people should learn new things and try new things. Don't be afraid and reassess your way of seeing risk. What, what you might consider risky is probably not risky and, and vice versa. Um, and if you're, if you're in a career or some path that you are not happy with, it's a very low risk to switch paths, especially if you're like, like if you're 20, 30, 40 years old, there's a long way to go. And uh, you can entirely switch career totally. And there's no uh, risk in that. And, and never, ever uh, consider sunk costs uh, an important factor. Sunk costs are just like gifts from your past you uh, that you can entirely disregard. Uh, and you can totally try out new things uh, with very little risk. And lastly, how can people today support the solution you are working on? I think uh, we will be recruiting quite uh, um, a lot. Um, so keep a watch on our website, climateview.global. And um, that's one way. We need great people to work for us. And uh, just follow us on LinkedIn or, or uh, just stay engaged. And uh, yeah, and spread the word. And if, you, uh, if you're not interested in working for us yourself, uh, tell others. Frederick, thank you so much for being here today. Like, it was a really big pleasure and like took out a lot. So thank you so much for taking the thank time. You.